Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our online events, including on February 17th, film critic David Thompson in conversation with Francine Stock. Coming up on the show today, Linda Hirschman, author of the new book, The Colour of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet and a Contessa Moved a Nation. Uh, Linda, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much. So let's start uh, with the obvious. Who were the printer, the prophet and the contessa? The printer was William Lloyd Garrison, the founder and publisher throughout its history of the abolitionist paper, The Liberator. The prophet was um, Frederick Douglass. Um, Not only did he see what needed to happen, but he used Old Testament rhetoric to push it along. And the Contessa is the nickname that her admirers gave her for Maria Weston Chapman, the high Brahmin, socially connected, beautiful and wealthy, unexpected abolitionist. Yeah, and the their book really is about the alliance uh, between the three of them. And, and you start uh, in 1841 with Frederick Douglass addressing this vast crowd at a rally in Nantucket. Tell us about that. Um, I loved it because it's such a dramatic scene to start a book with, right? Um, uh, Frederick Douglass had escaped from enslavement in Maryland two, three years before the book opens, and um, he had been telling the story of his past in his um, small black church in Connecticut where he had taken refuge. And um, uh, a white abolitionist hurt him. And it was such a gripping story even then that this white abolitionist activist asked him to come to the big abolition meeting on Nantucket in 1841. So when the curtain rises on the book, the uh, uh, assembly hall in Nantucket is filled with a huge crowd of white abolitionists and a scattering of black abolitionists, which is a fair reflection of the movement at that point. Um, It wasn't segregated, but it wasn't real integrated either. And Frederick Douglass, who had only been speaking in little black churches and stuff in his small town, is asked to tell his story. And he stands up and tells his story. And after he finishes, when he stops, William Lloyd Garrison, who was unassailably the founder and the head of the Boston abolitionist movement at that point, stands up and says to the crowd, What have we heard? Is this a man or a thing? And it's a it's an incredibly dramatic uh, moment uh, in the in this uh, opening part uh, of the book, as you say, where uh, Garrison is talking about uh, Douglas as a man or as a, as a piece of property. And one of the things that I was really struck by is 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 what an instinctive performer Douglas was right from the very beginning. That he literally has these audience this audience eating out of his hand, and and you show how it's the variety of his rhetoric 
fantastic that he does impressions, he uses humour. Uh, at, 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 at some points uh, later on, you show that he even sings uh, when he's making these uh, speeches. So there's there's a kind of, uh, there's an intrinsic talent there, which uh, really is released for perhaps for the first time, at least to a wide audience uh, at this uh, moment in Nantucket, when uh, people like Garrison realise that they literally have a star on their hands. A star of unparalleled impact. I actually regard Frederick Douglass as the most important American of the 19th century. Um, and part of his importance lies in his charisma, right? The word charisma in, in, means magic in a sense. And that ability to um, make real it orally at first, and then when he gets um, started writing both letters and editing his own newspaper in print, to make the story real is was a gift to the abolitionists. Yeah, and as as you say, I mean, there's there's the charisma, the the power of his personality, um, and particularly when he's up there on on the stage. But but it's also about what he's saying, isn't it? That you make the point that really this is a movement that runs on words. So to find somebody who can use words uh, with such power, I mean, that's something really quite special. It was a miracle. I I love the story about how his when he was a little boy, his mistress, who was not accustomed to slavery as a system, was teaching her white son to read. And while she did that, she started to teach the enslaved Frederick Douglass, young Frederick Douglass, how to read. And then her husband came in and stopped her, saying that slaves who read are slaves who run away. And um, so Douglas then, of course, became determined to learn how to read, right? Um, and uh, he would see the letters on signs and stuff at the docks in Baltimore where he was uh, free to roam. And um, he figured out what they must mean. And then he reverse engineered them to teach himself how to read. It's an astonishing story and his relationship with words and his prose, his beautiful prose, what to the Negro is your 4th of July and um, uh, his story, he was in a way like Lincoln, a storyteller also. So um, yes, it was his great strength, both orally and in writing. He was the only one who could do both of those things at the highest level. And, and and in some ways, uh, it, it's easy to forget the inherent danger as well. You you make the point early on that really, as as a former enslaved person, he's not safe anywhere in the United States, even at something like this Nantucket event, uh, an abolitionist rally. Right, because even before the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, um, under the Constitution and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, uh, fugitive slaves could be captured and sent back to enslavement. And indeed, um, any black person could be captured and um, accused of being a runaway slave. So they were very vulnerable to being recaptured. And um, also they were vulnerable to anti-abolitionist violence. The, black, the handful of black leaders of the abolitionist movement were disproportionately targeted for 
for violence by the white anti-abolitionist forces in the North. One of the things that that's really interesting about this alliance uh, of the, the the three characters uh, that uh, that you've got in the book Garrison, uh, Chapman, and Douglas uh, is that uh, this is in many ways a, a very modern looking movement. That it involves uh, characters of different race, it involves men and women. How common was that uh, in the early nineteenth century and in, in the abolitionist movement? Um, the the inclusion of white women. Well, so um, there is a black abolitionist movement that sort of grows up alongside the white abolitionist movement. It was first, it was earlier, unsurprisingly, free blacks in the North and, and fugitive slaves and stuff would, you know, want to attack the system of slavery. So the black institutions go way back. But when... Um, when Garrison comes on and the immediate abolition of slavery movement gets started in 1830, um, relatively soon uh, they include, started to include women. Lydia Maria Child, for example, was a very early member of the Boston abolitionist movement. Um, and then the women's, the black women started black women's anti-slavery societies and almost immediately the white women again imitated that and started women's anti-slavery societies and they quickly included black women in their numbers. So it was really pretty early on uh, an, a movement that included women. It was disproportionate. Um, most of the New England Anti-Slavery Society, which was the first one, and the American Anti-Slavery Society, which was the first national one, were white men, as most American institutions of power were. And but but you do make it clear that uh, we need to be careful not to romanticise what's going on. It's it's interesting that the 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 interracial tensions are actually apparent right from the the very beginning. That you give the example of the the fact that Garrison in his newspaper, for example, hardly mentions Douglas at all uh, in the report of that first rally, and doesn't even use his his name. So, you know, th those things, those tensions, which do become very important later on when this alliance breaks up, uh, they were really there right from the start. And it's so unconscious, right? I mean, um, Garrison praised Douglas to the skies as a man. Is this a man? And that was the most important assertion that Douglas made from beginning to end, right? That black people were fully human, gifted with speech and reason and so forth. So, so... Um, I don't think that Garrison, who was actually one of the less racist people I write about in the book, I don't think he intended it to be insulting. And that's, in a sense, more revealing, isn't it? Because when I looked at the reports of the Nantucket meeting so I could use them for my book, right? I was reading the primary sources to try to tell the story. I was pretty taken aback when I saw that William Lloyd Garrison referred to Douglas, who had brought down the house at this meeting, as several young Negro men. And it's it, it's one of the reasons that you warn us uh, fairly early on. You you ask the question: Can a movement that is integrated across race, sex, and class work? The answer is yes. You say, and no. You then add, right? Um, don't people? Isn't it fun to be a journalist? Right. So you can answer those incredibly exigent and poignant questions 
yes and no. But I will say this. I think yes and no is a better answer than either yes, okay, to romanticize the movement and pretend that there was no tension in it um, is unrealistic and doesn't lead to change. And to say no is also a counsel of despair because the uh, millions of enslaved Black Americans in 1830 were not going to be able to emancipate themselves. This was not Haiti. So there had to be an alliance with white activists to make abolition happen. And I mean, that's something that uh, has become somewhat controversial over the last few years. This this notion about uh, what progress means. Is there such a thing as progress on this question of uh, race in the United States? Right. And I actually had one of my liberal academic friends challenge me when I was just starting to work on this book. He said, you know, it's not a great movement. It certainly isn't the greatest movement. It really accomplished nothing. Within a few years after 1863, they were, or Juneteenth, say 1865, they were back picking cotton under terrible circumstances. But I disagree with that so deeply. Abolition had to happen before anything else could happen. So if you read the wonderful Warmth of Other Sons book uh, about how the Black people in the South took to the streets and the rails to get out, before abolition, the furthest that you could get any time was a 12-hour walk from where you were enslaved before your masters noticed that you were gone. It's a huge accomplishment. One of the things that uh, I find very interesting about the book is the way in which class and and race work together in in terms of the narrative. And one of the things, uh, frankly, that came as a surprise to me was that that Garrison, the uh, one of the other major figures in the book, is a genuinely is a working class boy made good who grew up in great poverty um, and really rose uh, through his uh, through his great talents. He was never rich, okay? He was pretty much living from hand to mouth, even when the liberator was at its height, and his supporters had to organize so that he could afford to have a tiny little house for his family. So many of the other abolitionists in Boston came from money and were much, much better off than he was. He was never rich, but he was so poor when he started out that his baby sister was starving and she ate a plant in their garden, which turned out to be poisonous and died. So he came from very modest background and, um, uh, and I think that that in part accounts for the fact that he was the least racist of the characters that I write about, the white characters that I write about in the book. And it was very, very sad at the end when his anger at Douglas for disagreeing with him politically, right? They had an ideological split after 10 years of alliance, um, that he was so angry at him that he ultimately revealed his willingness to treat Douglas as less than a full human being. 
I mean, it's interesting that that Garrison's working class background is is very different uh, to the other character uh, in the book, Maria Weston Chapman. I mean, her family is part of the owners of the biggest shipping firm in the United States. Her uncle is one of the founders of Baring's Bank in London, one of the great uh, London houses, houses, uh, at least until uh, Nick Leeson uh, turned uh, turned up later later on. Uh, so, I mean, she really does come from a uh, from a background that it contrasts with uh, that of Garrison. It's it's interesting to think about how much of your fate in life depended on what your family wealth was like. There really was no safety net at all, other than the churches. So when William Lloyd Garrison's, when the War of 1812 came and William Lloyd Garrison's father, who was a seaman, was impoverished, the father ran away and the family lived on the charity of their church, basically. There really was no safety net. When the War of 1812 came and Maria Weston Chapman's father, who was a shipper, was uh, impoverished, they fell back on their family wealth. So her mother's family, um, uncles and grandparents um, saved them financially. So it depended tremendously on um, who your ancestors were. And and of course with uh, with Douglas, I mean, in t- in terms of his early life, most of what we know comes from his own narrative accounts and and his um, I think it's three memoir uh, accounts that he wrote. Right, uh, Douglas was the least well cared for. He the insofar as he got help from anywhere, it was from his British supporters. So um, this is so interesting. Just think about how the white American abolitionists saw Douglas as an asset that they could deploy on their speaking stages and who would be hugely successful in advancing the cause. But after he published his memoir, he went to Ireland and England, to the UK, to uh, speak and get away from the uh, people who might be chasing him down. And the British abolitionists saw him as a full human being. And they did two things to help him. They bought his freedom and they bought his first printing press. So it was that was the moment at which Frederick Douglass got a little distance from his dependence on his week-to-week paycheck. One of the things that that is interesting in the way that the story develops is that I mean we saw that that Douglas announces himself almost as a as a as a superstar right from the very beginning, but initially he does need the support uh, of uh, Chapman and and Garrison for financial reasons for the 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 ability of Garrison to publicise the me- the message and so on. But he he it seems to be that part of the problem is that he just simply outgrows them that he becomes one of the most famous men uh, in the United States and just simply moves beyond them uh, by the time we get to the late 1840s. He has completely eclipsed them. Um, There's a terrible scene early on where he just does something that displeases Maria Weston Chapman and she threatens to withhold his paycheck. And he had at that point a wife to whom he was deeply indebted and many children to support. So it was a very terrible thing that she did to threaten his paycheck. Um, but once his memoir got published and started to sell here and in the UK, 
Um, he got a little bit of a cushion. But yes, um, William Lloyd Garrison was a, a wonderful, brilliant humanitarian who saw the horizon when no one else saw the horizon. So I do not mean to take away from him at all, but um, Douglas was indeed the superstar of the abolitionist movement. As Abraham Lincoln said in 1865, there's no one whose opinion matters more to me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, right at the very end of the book, you go on to uh, give accounts of the, the different uh, meetings and encounters between Douglas uh, and Lincoln. And I, I actually found that uh, in, in, in many ways uh, kind of very moving because you do show through the book how Douglas was a very, uh, in many ways, very prickly kind of character. He was often going on strike. He was very clear about what he wanted to achieve, would, would very rarely compromise on questions of principle. But when he goes to see Lincoln, even though he disagrees with him often, he comes away recognizing that he is an uh, an honest man, that he is honest, uh, honest Abe, uh, and so even even where there's disagreement, there's a kind of a, a, a sense that there's a meeting of minds that happens here. Frederick Douglass had good EQ. It turns out, right? He actually got he understood how potent that contact was um, when he went to uh, negotiate with Lincoln over how the Union would treat the increasing number of former slaves who became the backbone of the Union Army. And so Douglas knew that he had some power, so he was going to use it, which he did, on behalf of the enslaved and formerly enslaved as always. Um, but he, I think he understood that um, he was used to dealing with people who didn't go as far as he wanted them to, but were part of the way down the road. And I think he recognized that Lincoln had the possibility of being an ally. And as his meetings with Lincoln go by, Lincoln is more and more of an ally because Lincoln grew and he grew in part from his contact with Frederick Douglass which is one of the reasons that I call Douglas the most important man of the 19th century. Yeah, and actually you you make the point right at the very end of the book that the Lincoln-Douglas alliance, this is, this is the highest that uh, a black man will achieve for 100 years. So, I mean, this is significant at the time. It's significant that it takes so long uh, before uh, a figure will achieve that kind of political power uh, again. Um, you know, if... I, I didn't mean to tell a sad story. I, I think it's a bittersweet story because the way that the white abolitionists treated Douglas catapulted him over to the political wing of abolition, and that was the winning team, okay? He got traded to the Patriots or whatever. So um, that was the winning team. So it was actually, from the standpoint of American history, really a good thing that that happened. Um, but you can, the, the bitter part of the lesson is that if the abolitionists had this deep inside them, had this attitude toward this great man deep inside them, then you can imagine what the garden variety white American population was thinking. So ultimately, what do you think that uh, the, the, the legacy, uh, not just of Douglas, but of these three characters and the alliance that they formed uh, was uh, uh, for the United States? 
the the relevance, which is so pointed right now, this very minute, is that um, it is going to be very hard to make alliances across race and class lines. The Democratic Party right now, representing the survival of the American Republic, is a very fraught and fragile alliance. And that is hard. And it shows all of the stresses that I write about in my book. But you absolutely have to make it succeed. And that's the second lesson of my book, is that when Douglas went over to the New York abolitionists, they treated him like a, a man and a citizen. And ultimately, that alliance succeeded. And at the end of the book, he's negotiating with Abraham Lincoln. And, and and what about history itself as as part of the debates uh, that we're having today? I mean, we're recording uh, in Black History Month. I wonder where where do you feel that that history stands at the moment um, in in terms of thinking about these kind of topics and what it uh, what kind of influence it has on the wider political and social debates in the country? So, um, historians, it's called history for a reason. Histoire, right? Historians are storytellers, and we are storytellers, and we are tell. And storytellers matter amazingly, right? From since Homer or before, we have mattered. And the story that we're telling is changing, and the um, resistance from the white supremacists and the white dominant people and the Republicans and the conservatives to having the story told is really a tribute to history because they recognize that if you can tell the story properly, you can change how people think. And if you can change how people think, you can change what happens next. So um, early in my book, the abolitionists got hold of uh, powerful um, scene printing presses, and they turned out thousands of copies of their newspapers and magazines, and they sent them to the South, and the Southerners set them on fire. They did not want that story told. And at a metal level, the conflict between people like me and, you know, Ibram Kendi and um, Clint Smith and Sephora John, earlier Eric Foner and David Blight, who are telling the story, and the people who want to, and Nicole Hannah Jones, who are telling the story, and the people who want to shut us up, is the same confrontation as they had in the post office in Georgia when the first abolitionist literature arrived, and they set it on fire. And and there there has to be a, a pluralism, doesn't there, as as part of the telling of that story? I think also there are facts of the matter. Okay, so the only critical review that my beautiful book has received accused me of lying about whether William Lloyd Garrison and the white abolitionists had actually treated Frederick Douglass badly. And this upset me in a way that bad reviews normally do not upset me because I was looking at the letters. <laughs> so this is not Linda Hirschman figuring it out. I found the letters in which they called him the N-word in the archives. So at some point, there also has to be a fact of the matter. 
about which we can then offer pluralistic interpretations. So the book is The Colour of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet and a Contessa Moved a Nation. It's written by my guest, Linda Hirschman, and published by Mariner Books. But for now, Linda, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you for having me. What a lovely name. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying... Thanks for listening.